Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can sign up for our live Zoom events. Coming up on the show today, Timothy Brennan, Professor of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota and author of the new book, Places of Mind, A Life of Edward Said. Uh, Tim, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the book. Um, why Edward Said for you? Well, there's a personal dimension. I knew him for much of my life. He was my PhD advisor and uh, so on. Um, I was actually asked to write this biography, so it wasn't something that I had thought I was going to do originally. But Edward Said is, I think it's fair to say, one of the great public intellectuals of uh, the post-war period. Uh, certainly that would be true in the United States. So along with you know Noam Chomsky and Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, possibly Susan Sontag, he would be the next best thing to America's Jean-Paul Sartre. So this is to say that he was somebody who was a literary critic and a professor, worked at the university, worked his entire career at Columbia University, but he was at the same time something that most professors are not, which is somebody who routinely could be found on the nightly news programs, uh, debating heads of state uh, or uh, State Department representatives or uh, people from the Israeli government. Um, frequently, he was called upon to talk about uh, Palestine. He was a Palestinian American uh, who was brought up in Cairo and came as a very young man to the United States. But he was very Palestine identified and he was operating in a public sphere at a time that it was very difficult to be pro-Palestinian and to be critical of Zionism and the state of Israel. So one of the things, it's not the only thing, but one of the things that makes him so important is that he changed forever the conversation over Israel and Palestine. He made a critique of Zionism popular, um, certainly acceptable. He did much more. Uh, he was a public intellectual in many respects in the sense that he brought the humanities uh, into the center of the political discussion. So much of what he wrote about and talked about in public spheres, because he's best-selling author, you know, translated into almost every language on the face of the earth, was the importance of the humanities and the importance of being an intellectual as opposed to being, let's say, a novelist or a poet who's the kind of humanist who usually is given the microphone. He changed that as well. Yeah, so let's talk about the personal elements first. As you say, you were taught by him in grad school at uh, Columbia. You became a friend. Um, th that comes with advantages as a biographer, uh, but also challenges. H how did you overcome those challenges in writing what, as you uh, say here, really was an, an authorised biography of Edward Said? Yes, well, um, it is It is a challenge. Uh, there's the element, first of all, that I had already written widely on Edward Said before I was asked to write this biography, uh, some of the essays were ones that I wrote when Edward was still alive. In this kind of venue, I was frequently taking a position of some sort, right? Trying to show that he had been misinterpreted or trying to argue or amplify certain aspects of his life. It was very, very important to me in doing this biography that I was not speaking just for my position that I was trying as best as I could to triangulate among the hundreds of interviews I did with people who knew him as a, a, a child growing up in, in Cairo, as a, as a young intellectual in Beirut, his second home along with New York, 
his his family, which gets short shrift in his memoir, you know, to find out what what what, what their Edward was, and 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 so on. So I think knowing him personally helped because one is already familiar with this this personality and this these internal conflicts that were so rife in his life, but. Um, I felt that I wanted to represent a kind of cross-section of Edward so that it wasn't taking just a partisan stance, so that I could really speak to people who knew him as an activist, knew him as a musician, or knew him as uh, a literary critic. And you you talk about some of those challenges early on in the book that he has what you describe as this kind of celebrity quality with fanatical disciples and fanatical enemies. Yeah, how how do you move beyond what you call that series of placards about him? You know, the thing about Edward is that although he is known for writing a polemical book called Orientalism, or he's known for, let's say, angry encounters with Gene Kirkpatrick, you know, <laughs> then in, in the administration, when he um, was on these nightly news programs, he would come off, I think, in, in most people's rendering as a rather angry man. And he's often been, you know, referred to that way. But the thing is, is that not only personally, uh, was he somebody who could move on a dime from uh, petulance uh, to to a succor, you know, and and uh, to, to be ingratiating and friendly, to be boyish and offhanded, you know, th this this complicated, complex character, many-sidedness, is what one knows him to be personally. But all of that is really reflected uh, eloquently in the writing. My task was to go through this formation of him intellectually, which often involved the reading of very, very dense works of philosophy and theory, and to try to show, first of all, how that was intimately connected to his political intervention, that it fed it, that it really provided the methodology for how to go about it uh, the way he saw it, but also to translate those ideas into, in, into a form that people could understand and appreciate. That's, I think, how, because intimately he did infuse his writings with something that went beyond the placards. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's interesting to me that one of the, the ways in which you do this in the book is that you take the idea of him as an outsider, uh, but you also show, particularly early on, how in many ways he's a quintessential insider, that he's born into a wealthy merchant family that uh, does very well out of the British Empire. He's educated at Harvard and Princeton, uh, has his job at Columbia. Um, and as, as you say, he, he comes from a world of prep schools too much for my taste, you say, um, uh, early on in the book. So there, there are always these seem to be these paradoxes about him that, uh, that make him a complex figure. Well, as Noam Chomsky said when I was interviewing him, Edward was part of the uh, academic establishment, the intellectual establishment, whereas I, Noam Chomsky, am not and want nothing to do with it. I think Edward was very happy, comfortable even, uh, around power and that he sought it out. He wanted to do that, I think, in order to transform the agenda. He wanted to affect the agenda, not merely comment on it, not merely critique it. So I think that uh, th this is a, a side of him that I think would be really important, this keen understanding of how you go about setting a new 
agenda, a set of goals, you know, getting people to think about not what is merely possible in politics, but what is desirable and let the desirable, desirable be uh, the compass for what then becomes possible. And he, d- he doesn't try to step away from many of these uh, more establishment tastes. I mean, you talk about the Savile Row suits and the German street shirts and the, uh, the, the, the handmade shoes and so on. And I think you describe him as an emissary of the New York Belle Lettre set. Exactly. Um, and this is part of the contradiction, because at the same time that he did in- enjoy these, these luxuries, he was also quite conscious about it and felt very <laughs> bad at times and would uh, reprimand himself in the presence of others. I think more than anything, though, he wanted to not be a victim, but he wanted also to, you know, challenge power right up to the point of suffering for having done so. He was rewarded. Uh, he was awarded by the establishment in a number of ways, not only within academia, but outside of it. A winner of many awards, uh, constant glowing uh, tributes and, and, and memorials for him. But he was somebody who uh, was reminding people that he is not actually like the exiles that many of his Palestinian brethren are, that, that he, he, he doesn't suffer in that same way, that he is quintessentially American. But you know, at the same time, you'd have to say he was quintessentially Palestinian. This um, line that would often be used against him, that because he lived his whole life in New York and he never returned to the Palestinian territories to to, uh, teach, even though he went there to make several documentary films, this meant that there was something inauthentic about him. But of course, as he he described very well in this uh, this photo text collage book, After the Last Guy, which he did with uh, uh, the Swiss-German photographer Jean Moore, to be Palestinian is to be in exile. It's it's to always think about the place that you want to return to, but can't. And it, it does seem to be something that he thought about a lot. I mean, you mentioned the documentary there that uh, when he's making that documentary for the BBC, uh, and you write that uh, he wanted to be welcomed by Palestinian residents in the territories as one of their own, and it hurt him very much that he wasn't. So this was this was something that uh, often could give him pain. But why why was there that ambivalence, do you think? Is it is it this element that you were talking about before that many saw him as more of an American than as a Palestinian. But what is an American after all, right? (laughs) So many Americans are from other parts of the world. Particularly, this is true in New York. Almost nobody is a native New Yorker in New York. um, But is that a a very American way to see it? I mean, seen from Palestine, maybe they understand more what an American actually is than if it's kind of part of an internal American dialogue. Well, I think that there is a, you know, a, a legitimate criticism at times launched within the Palestinian movement that Edwards' emphasis, which politically was always that the Palestinian leadership needed to think more about how to play the media within the United States, that the the real way forward for the Palestinian cause was to, you know, occupy the moral high ground and to win the debate morally and ethically in the public sphere, just like the African National Congress did in South Africa, that that's really the way forward. As legitimate as that point is, the fact is, is he didn't know what the day-to-day life really was like in the territories. And when he went back, he was in for some shock 
Um, there's a very, very wonderful moment captured when he's interviewing uh, teenagers uh, in, in Palestine in one of these documentaries, where it's very clear that the woman he's talking to, the young woman he's talking to, identifies as an Israeli. She's an Israeli-Palestinian, and she's actually patriotic towards Israel as a Palestinian. And this is something that I think probably moved him. There are many reasons for this, but one of the things that moved him in his latter life to emphasize that the solution in uh, Palestine and Israel is a, a one-state solution, that they both occupy the same territory. It's two peoples in one land, as he put it. And therefore, the, the whole focus should be on, let's have a, a free and democratic Israel slash Palestine, right? Instead of the apartheid state that exists there now. And I, I think it is worth saying uh, for listeners that you, uh, although uh, this is an, an authorised biography and you very much identify as a, a former student and friend, you don't shy away from criticism. I'm thinking particularly of the incident with Hezbollah, uh, where he throws a stone and, and it really uh, kind of is castigated by the kind of international media. And you make it quite clear that it, he really has been very naive in that situation doesn't perhaps really understand how he's being taken advantage of and how his celebrity uh, is being is being by, used by by uh, in this instance Hezbollah. Exactly. I think I'm I'm critical there, but I'm critical in many other respects as well. There are things that uh, I simply didn't see eye to eye uh, with Edward on uh, politically, um, and I think I try to make that clear at every point. But I also want to. You know, represent this complicated personality uh, that that he was, and that he himself would freely admit. I flinch a little bit to hear it uh, called an authorized biography. You know, which uh, to me suggests that sort of the family has final say on on what's going to. There, there were no restrictions put on me in that way whatsoever. Um, but there was, I think, and this was very helpful to me, actually crucial for me, is that unlike other people who've written about him, I did have access to many of the friends who would not uh, be interviewed about him because they didn't trust what the you know interviewer was going to do with the information so I did have that. Yeah, and it's 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 always uh, it's always an interesting element, isn't it? That you know, being um, I'm going to use the phrase again, but being an authorized biographer uh, means presumably that you had access to the papers. You were the kind of the uh, what we used to call the rolodex would have been open to you, and and you generally would have been kind of given encouragement through his kind of friends and family and so on. But uh, you know, again, I I can certainly say for listeners that there's a very strong sense of that this is this is a critical biography even if even if you're very clear up front uh, about the fact that you kind of did admire him and that you worked closely with him uh, so so you know I think that that actually you tread that kind of what can sometimes be a difficult path uh, very very well yeah. the the other thing that actually that you do uh, and I wanted to make sure that I kind of drew attention to this uh, is that even though inevitably we've been talking about uh, uh, Palestine, We'll come on to talk about Orientalism. One of the things that you do really well in the book and you are at pains to emphasize is that he actually is a very often a very thoughtful, very a kind of um, intensely quiet scholar that a lot of the work that he does is on detail. It's not the kind of showy, polemical stuff that perhaps he became most famous for. Well, I think that's very true. And it was borne out also uh, by his conduct in the classroom. Uh, he, he could show... I would call it a calculated anger at, at various moments uh, to 
inspire us to work a little harder and to remember a little bit more clearly uh, what we had been reading. So he was highly demanding in that way. That way, he wasn't, for example, the kind of person that you would walk into his office and simply like you know shoot the breeze. It was you know you'd go in there only when you had a finished chapter that you were ready to defend. But um, I mentioned the word boyish before. That is also the way that he could be. And so I saw him on more than one occasion, once involving me myself, when somebody had sort of lost their way in, in their classroom commentary, and he would come in and save the day. So he was he was empathetic. He was loyal. He was tender. And, and, and when he wanted to, he would have all the time in the world just to simply talk with you. So, I mean, he, he is this combination. And I mean, you talk about the classroom there. One of the most intriguing elements uh, of the book is that you show that, you know, particularly to, at the, uh, towards the end of his life, that he actually worried about the dangers of politics entering the classroom, that he saw those dangers, which are very much apparent today. I, I suspect that he would have hated cancel culture in the universities and so on, wouldn't he? I think he would have, yes. I think he would have spoken directly against it. He, um, was very, very careful throughout. You know, he he is really the product of an old-fashioned uh, humanistic approach to the world that was very much the mode of engagement at Columbia when he first showed up there uh, in the early 1960s. And it remained that way for the next two decades, which is to say the idea wasn't to train these kind of perfect, professionalized, future scholars of academia. The idea was to take personal responsibility as an individual student who reads a text to make it your own, to internalize it. Because this is part of the grand spiritual conversation, you know? Um, he, of course, was very attuned, especially later in his career, to make that conversation involve more than the uh, classics of Europe. He was instrumental in broadening the canon and opening the doors of the university to uh, non-white scholars from the former colonies. But he was very much a believer in spirit, humanistic spirit in an old-fashioned sense. And so, yes, then this, this, this antagonistic um, occupation of uh, one's own uh, preoccupation with one's own identity in order to uh, kind of un unmask, you know, power constantly uh, as a fight within the classroom is, is, is not what he thought would 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 be the way to go. Everyone should learn uh, the, the classics, which involve the classics of Europe as well. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I found really intriguing and that and that you bring out all the time, his subtlety of thought. I mean, there's, uh, as, as one, uh, one critic, and I'm not going to quote quite here, one critic uh, says of Orientalism that uh, in this book, he takes the empire and the West and told them to go F themselves. Uh, that's a slight reduction, obviously. Um, but, uh, but, but, but then you show how actually, in many ways, he's, um, I was going to say ambivalent about the Orientalists, but actually is quite admiring of Orientalists. He, he admires their range and their style, the sweep of their knowledge. He can, even though he's critical, of Joseph Conrad. He continues to love Conrad's writing uh, all his life. So in many ways, he's, he's actually a much more subtle writer and thinker uh, than many of his adherents. Very much so. I mean, he, he is a, a person that was, um, you know, filled with contradictions, of course. 
uh, but they're contradictions that he himself was aware of and would bring up to the surface and in and even in uh, some ways try to uh, defend so this way that you have a putting it about his relationship to these uh, these philologists these you know literary scholars of uh, of the arcane texts of uh, uh, middle eastern antiquity you know he is in fact critical of the world that they create but he is much more than just complementary towards them i think it would be fair to say that he's studying at their feet he's in awe of their abilities and is trying very much to learn how their texts attained as he puts it mass density and referential power right so he, he uh has gotten this taste for the th this kind of uh, scholarship from his dissertation advisor at harvard Harry Levin, and he, he never really uh, deviates from Levin in this particular love. I mean, what do you think the, the legacy of that book, uh, Orientalism, is? Because certainly in, in terms of impact, it's difficult to think of many books, as you say, in the post-war era, uh, which have really spread, uh, spread particularly through the academy, but also into uh, kind of general conversation. Right. Well, I think that there's a couple of things about it that are really distinctive. Uh, as many people have pointed out, it it isn't uh, his own uh, original contribution to have shown that the representations of people who are Muslim or from the Middle East, Arab, uh, has been uh, guilty of uh, deformation and, and caricature and cliche, and that there are political consequences to this. Uh, other people have made that as, this argument. But what makes his argument a different well, it partly has to do with the fact that it's coming out of the 1970s. I mean, it's published in 1978, but it's written with all of the energy and the furor of the uh, anti-war movement years of the 1960s. He's very consciously, in fact, thinking of uh, Palestine and the Middle East as, as being uh, the potential cause celeb that Vietnam was uh, during the war years. And so he's making a connection. He's seeing, he's seeing his operation, in fact, of writing Orientalism, despite its scholarliness, as being part of the national liberation movement. Uh, this is how he sees it. But there's things, there's, you, you, you've men mentioned now a, a couple of times, quite rightly, the subtlety uh, of Edward's writing and thinking. What he's really doing in that book is saying that literary questions of narrative and of the image and of representation have deep political consequences and so you could say that although it's certainly about the middle east and about arabs and muslims and how they're represented it is a a study of political representation and the power of rhetoric the idea that representing somebody is not just the opposite of misrepresenting them the idea that representing somebody is a part of reality not just a reflection of it. This is his, his point. And it's a theoretical point that he makes known. Somehow he gets this point across. And it's what many of the area studies experts who are themselves Orientalists take umbrage at, this idea that these literary theoretical issues could, could actually be as consequential as he's arguing that they are. Of course, the other thing about Orientalism that's so unusual is that he places the, the, the humanist intellectual at the center of, of political life. And he does this in a certain campaigning spirit, which led to vast institutional changes in the university. That the demographics of the university, it would be overstating to say was uniquely caused by Orientalism, but 
Orientalism had a lot to do with creating a movement that led to that outcome. So the people who disagree with Edwards' book, Orientalism, are left with much more than a distasteful argument. They're left with a complete change in the environment uh, that that's permanent. Yeah, and it's and it's fascinating because I mean, you say uh, kind of in the book that I mean, this is far from being his best book. That uh, right. you kind of, as you point out, his, the historians criticize the history. Middle Middle Eastern studies scholars criticize him for being too narrow. Um, it's not his best book, and yet it has this incredible legacy, both inside universities and I think in terms of broader culture uh, as well. In 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 some ways. You you almost get the sense in kind of reading the book that he was kind of glad that it had had an impact, but he almost wished that it had been one of his other books that had had that impact. <laughs> I think you I think you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, Edward Edward, if Edward were um, only this writer of these really great books um, that circulated so widely, um, that would be one thing. But if if he were not this uh, performer. Right, the person who kind of performed himself, you could say, on the speaker's circuit, or who could be seen, in fact, on television often, and and who's alive even for the younger generation that didn't know him, because it's the age of YouTube, and so you can go and you can see all of these things. So, this this idea of of being a performer of ideas, is uh, an important part of how he got across, and that involved, um, it, it involved, humor, right. Um, it involved this handsome man who was um, quick on his feet and therefore fun to listen to, quite apart from what he happened to be saying at the moment. It was also, though, there, there's a kind of earnestness, right, the kind of ingenuousness about his presentation, which was quite out of step with the age of postmodernism. I mean, all of this really made, um, made him who he was. However, Orientalism, this is what I'm coming back to, is an angry book. You know, in spite of what I said, that it's not only anger, that's not his only register. This was an angry book. And I think it taught a lot of people the place of anger in, in scholarship. Although, it's, as well as that anger, as you say, this is not a kind of a, this is not a nihilism that uh, one of the quotes that really stood out to me is where uh, he said, saying no to everything is uninteresting. There must be a constructive element. And right. that's something that comes through time and time again in the book. Right. Yeah. And I think that he expressed that very often in who he was attracted to. He was very much of the mind, and this is, makes him very different from Michel Foucault, who he is often thought of as like uh, owing the most to intellectually. He was very much of the mind that we as intellectuals create our own influences, right? We have to choose them actively. We, 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 we have this constellation of, of thinkers that for whatever reason speak to us, that we've learned from. And what's very peculiar about Edward in this sense is that he he tended to be attracted to people who were very different from him, that he disagreed with. In fact, that he even reviled. So Jonathan Swift would be an example of this kind of person. Joseph Conrad, um, you know, both political reactionaries, both um, unpleasant people uh, to be around. So you could call it a perversity or you could call it um, a savoring of the contradictions of life that one learned the most from the people who 
one was most unlike. And, you know, I guess that uh, the relationship with the conductor and pianist Daniel Barenboim, very close personally, but from very different worlds or cultural worlds, is, is a good example of that, that, you know, the work that they did creating the West Eastern Divan Orchestra with Israeli and Palestinian musicians, the Barenboim Said Academy uh, in Berlin, that seems to be a, a perfect example of what you're talking about. Right. Well, Daniel Barenboim, I mean, is someone who is very, very free in saying how much he loved Edward. I mean, and he uses the word love and he, and he underlines it. Um, they talked every day by phone. It's a very, very affectionate relationship and went way beyond their uh, collaborations. However, you know, Daniel Barenboim is a consummate musician, and that's how he thinks. Edward is primarily a literary critic and theorist who knows, according to Barenboim himself, everything about classical music. Nevertheless, the approach is different. So I think it, it is, in fact, um, a confirmation of what you're saying, that this book of conversations that they did together and published has the title Parallels and Paradoxes, right? Which is a way of uh, noting that they're really kind of talking at cross purposes. They love each other, but when they talk about the importance, for example, of silence in music, they are really talking about completely different things in two completely different ways. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, I mean, the, the West, uh, West Eastern Divan Orchestra was controversial. He was criticised by many, including his supporters, because it seemed to be normalising the Palestinian situation. But it, it seems to be another example where he's much more flexible than perhaps his most zealous supporters. Yes, I think that's true. It, it raises certain questions, though, that are ongoing. I mean, many of the people from the Middle East who've interview, interviewed me and, you know, response to this biography have wanted to know what I thought Edward would have said about today's BDS movement, right? The boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against the state of Israel. And of course, one can only speculate, but I would say that probably he would have supported it in some form, critically. However, you know, it is true that the leaders of the BDS movement uh, now uh, single out the West Eastern Devon Orchestra that he, he created with uh, Baron Boymas as, as, as being um, anathema as being uh, precisely against uh, their principles and their features. So I, I prefer to think um, that Edward was um, trying to do what he did in his earlier books, where he wrote very often about common language, like to, to find a common language among uh, peoples who are different. And he, I think, is at this point in his career, when he founded the orchestra or co-founded it with Barenboim, he's thinking in terms of the one state solution. So I think that this would then kind of not be incompatible with uh, the goals of the BDS movement. I think that he, in other words, is not trying to say, let's normalize relations with Israel, but keep in mind that many of the, 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 the most important critics of Zionism as an ideology are themselves Israeli and citizens of Israel. And many of the Palestinians are as well. And therefore, let's try to keep that in mind and, and create this notion that we are living in the same land and that we have to find a way to get along.
It is a it is an interesting point, though, as you say there, you know, perhaps people will be asking, well, what would Edward Said say about this? But the, the simple truth is that he was such a an innovative uh, and subtle thinker, as you say, sometimes angry, sometimes wrong about things, but it, but always original. And that kind of originality could only actually be the answer to those questions could only actually be given by Edward Said himself. Yes, yes. I mean, a, a good example of of that is, um, and, and 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 you know, one could say that somebody who is this well known and was this effective at changing people's views and opinions on a number of different issues and subjects is, by his very nature, uh, a tactfully adept and uh, you know, uh, well schooled in the rhetorical arts of persuasion, and I think that that would be true of Edward, but. The other side of it, again, to strike that note of contradiction, is that he often would concede or or, or admit, uh, confess, you might even say, uh, things about himself that uh, are simply, you know, impossible to to say without uh, incurring other people's wrath. That is, he would he he would join uh, other people's criticisms of him and, and simply admit that those were in fact his views. For example, he, towards the end of his life, being so disappointed at uh, uh, not being able to move the needle too much on uh, the in independent state for Palestine. He said, you know, maybe that is our strength. Maybe the fact that we're, we stand for inclusion and the Zionists for exclusion means that we don't literally have to attain a state of our own. Maybe it isn't about a plot of land, which I invest everything in. Maybe it's about something larger than that. Well, you know, you can imagine saying something like that as, as, as a, uh, attractive as it might be theoretically would be um wouldn't be music to the ears of many in the palestinian movement if i could put it that way so the book is places of mind a life of edward said it's written by my guest timothy brennan and published by farah strauss and juro but for now tim congratulations again and thanks for joining us on bookstack thanks so much richard so that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.